What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Mind Over Macros podcast. As always, I am your host, Mike Milner. And today I had a very special guest on the show. I had Dr. Stacy Sims. And this was full of wisdom. Like this episode was jam packed full of just absolute gold. If you are a woman, and really, if if you are just a, a human, you need to listen to this episode because um, Dr. Stacy Sims she dropped so much information, so much knowledge about the female athlete going through from puberty to perimenopause and the considerations that we need to make when it comes to nutrition, when it comes to training, when it comes to recovery. This is an episode that I am going to be sharing a lot because the conversation was so powerful and so informative. Um, I'm pumped for you guys to listen. I know you're going to love it. And if you do, we would like to hear about it. So the best thing to do is take a screenshot of the episode and then post it to your stories and tag me at coach underscore Mike underscore Milner. And you can tag at Dr. Stacy Sims as well. That's D-R-S-T-A-C-Y-S-I-M-S. Enjoy the episode. All right, everybody. I am joined by a very special guest today. I have Dr. Stacy Sims with me here, I think from New Zealand. Is that right? Yeah. So I counted and I'm um, 754 days since I was able to leave New Zealand. Wow. Okay. Well, I would actually love to hear the background of just <laughs> how you ended up in New Zealand. Um, but more importantly, just like your journey in general, getting into the health and fitness and nutrition space and, and just kind of the, the path that you've been on, uh, where it all started and, and how it landed you to uh, where you are today. I was sitting in Mount Monganui. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, I guess my interest in nutrition started when I was a teenager and I was, um, I landed in San Francisco and got involved in all the sustainable local kind of bubble that was way back then, just looking at how food can really help, um, I guess, more of a preventative medicine. So that that thread kind of stayed in my head the whole way through. And then as I got more and more involved in athletics, running, and then I went to Purdue and got involved in the crew team, um, noticing that a lot of the stuff that we were doing as women wasn't putting us in the same category of fitness as men, as you would expect it from the literature and the way that we are being taught in ex-phys, that you have periodization, you have progression. And so I really started questioning, like, what's going on here? Um, and then because I was one of those kids that always asked why, I became that student and came to realize by around the third-ish year of university that most of the stuff that we were learning was based on men. So when I started asking questions, well, how does this apply? And the tipping point that really came was when I was one of the only women that would volunteer for the metabolism labs or the biomechanic labs, and they would throw my data out saying it was an anomaly. I'm like, well, what do you mean it's an anomaly? I'm doing exactly the same thing, the same protocols, but yet it doesn't fit within the norm. So that didn't sit well. And so the more I got into the idea of training as an athlete, as well as looking as a sports scientist, the more things I was learning didn't sit with the application. So that's where I really started trying to understand why we were doing certain things as women, we knew that there are inherent sex differences from birth and we have a menstrual cycle and we are learning about like there's different 
um, fueling mechanisms that occur in different phases of the menstrual cycle. And I went and did my master's degree on overtraining in men versus women. They're completely different responses. So all of this has been going on for decades. I'd hate to really admit my age of really asking the question why. It's just in about the past four-ish years where it's really starting to get more of that global uptake of women are not small men. We need to look specifically at the menstrual cycle, oral contraceptive pills, menopause, that kind of stuff. Um, and then the big question of how I ended up here is uh, just throughout all of my research and studies um, and different opportunities, I had the opportunity to move back to New Zealand because I am married to a Kiwi to start a research program um, at the university here. And then COVID hit when that contract is up and now I'm stuck in New Zealand. But that's okay because you can do a lot of things globally. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. Um, I, I love I love the whole backstory. And I'm curious, like what the big discrepancies that you noticed early on in the process, um, you know, you mentioned participating in a study and then, um, you know, your result is basically tossed out because it doesn't fit the norm. Um, do you think it's like, I'm just so curious as to why we landed there in terms of like making the assumption that men and women should be equal when it comes to training response or metabolic response and knowing all of the differences inherently, uh, like what were some of the biggest kind of aha moments for you where you were like, okay, this just isn't stacking up because I think a lot of people who were probably in a similar situation to you just trust the research because that's what the research says. And it's easy to just look at a study and be like, okay, well, this is the average and not even questioning like who are the participants of the study and what was the sample size and what are we actually looking at here? Uh, what were some of those like big early moments that you were like, okay, something's definitely off. Um, I think that again, the turning point was in the metabolism lab when um, we were doing a, a two hour depletion run to look at the respiratory question. So that tells you how much carbohydrate versus fat that you're burning. And one was just with water and one with, with a carbohydrate drink to see how fueling changes between um, you know, long-term just depletion with nothing and then long-term supplementation with carbohydrate. And we did a familiarization. We did one with water, one with carbohydrate. And my results for the familiarization and the water trial were completely different. And so they were like, well, something's wrong here. The carbohydrate, not so much. And then retrospectively going back, when I started asking questions, well, what did I do wrong? Because I, my results were different. So what did I do wrong? And the only difference was menstrual cycle phase. And so, you know, in the offshoot of occasionally hearing, well, women burn more fat during the high hormone phase of the menstrual cycle, which wasn't really discussed. It was in a, an a upper graduate class when we started talking about it. I was like, wait a second, I was in the high hormone phase when I did one of those non-carbohydrate trials. So that must have been, so I really started questioning, well, why are you throwing it out if it's a natural response for my body to burn more fat? And when I started asking questions there, they're like, well, you know, it's an anomaly because it ruins the results. And if we are truly trying to get to the crust of it and understand it, then we combine men and women because we don't know enough about men to really study women by themselves. And women with a menstrual cycle becomes too difficult to study. And when you're a woman, you're hearing this and you're trying to understand sports science and you're also an athlete, you're kind of like, what the? 
right? So that was like the seed that was planted. And then being from San Francisco and being like going to high school in Haight-Ashbury, which is, you know, the hippie area and having the influence of feminism and understanding the cultural aspects of how things are developed and the patriarchy around science, around medical and understanding it's the whole cultural lens that creates the scientific design where we're looking at the the male view of, okay, this is a question we have to answer. We have a very short amount of time and we have a very limited amount of funding. So we need to get the participants in and out. If we add a menstrual cycle or we add oral contraceptive pill, it extends the timeline. And a lot of people don't even think about it. It doesn't even register because it's not normal for men to have a menstrual cycle. So it doesn't come into being. So when we look at the cultural influences through the historical influences of how we get into science, everything that's developed is through that male lens. So now we have protocols for VO2 max. We have protocols for lactate threshold. We have protocols for power, for Wingate, all of those things that are all based on male data, male physiology, but no one questions it. So back 20 years ago, it was really not even discussed or even thought about until someone who is very curious, like myself and some other female um, colleagues and, and teammates were really like, well, wait a second, we know we feel different when we have uh, different sessions during our menstrual cycle. How can that not be relevant when we're talking about research? Yeah, and I'm, I'm super curious as an athlete yourself, when you came to that conclusion, what you changed is kind of a two-part question, like what you changed in your own approach to nutrition and training as an athlete and then secondly, do you feel like we're starting to catch up with, with research? Do, we, do you feel like they're starting to, uh, we're at least getting more evidence and data to at least have you know, more studies geared around the female athlete? So back then, no, I didn't change anything because I thought it was all me. I thought it was my problem. And so I was the the one that would have to deal with the issues of having off performance. But as I got older and understood and was doing my own research and racing at a high level, then I would change what I was doing. I would have more carbohydrate in the days leading up to my period because then I could hit the intensities. Because as a cyclist, you're using a power meter. So you could see what your threshold was. You could see what power pushes you were doing. So if you increase carbohydrate, boom, you can push more power. So it was just one of those inherent things where it's like, okay, I know that there are these different changes, so I'll manipulate what I'm doing to be able to hit those metrics and those numbers. <clears throat> With regards to, um, you know, how the research is going now, are we catching up? I wish I could say yes. Um, there is a lot of systematic reviews coming out. There's a lot of editorial pieces coming out saying we don't know enough. And the stuff that we do see, there's not really a difference. So there's some voices out there that are conglomerating all of the research that's been done so far, which is poor methodology. There's um, inclusion of oral contraceptive pill with natural cycling without really pulling those apart. So when you're taking poor methodology and looking at the results and saying, well, there's no difference between menstrual cycle phases. Of course there's not because the methodology is wrong. So when that comes up in an editorial, like we need to do more research. So there's a call for more research to be done, which is fantastic. But there's also big voices out there that are like, well, maybe not. So it's fighting those big voices. And there are small pockets of really smart women and their PhD students and their male colleagues that are all like, wait a second. 
These are the things we need to do and we need to do them well and we need to do them rather quickly to improve the performance potential of women across the lifespan. Because we know puberty is a different hormonal profile from reproductive years, which is a different hormonal profile from perimenopause, which is completely different from menopause. So we need to understand those life cycles in order to be able to appropriately tell women how to eat, how to train, how to recover, to get the most out of their bodies that men have have had the luxury of getting for so many years. Yeah, I'd love to dive in a bit deeper there and actually go through those cycles. Um, my audience is is relatively more advanced in understanding, you know, basic nutrition and training, and I think they would love to kind of nerd out with like, let's go into those those life cycles and talk about the differences. I, I think you know, there's some of the stuff as you were talking came to mind about recent news events with like, um, you know, young female athletes being more vocal about some of the like rigorous training where they would end up, you know, with amenorrhea, losing their cycle, just like the, the side effects of being pushed, like they were, you know, as, as you say, a small man, like, can we talk, can we go into why that's happening and some of those considerations to make, starting with, you know, what happens at puberty? How do we, uh, you know, use the information that we have to come up with better practices and, and just help to create more awareness and education for the female athlete who might be, um, you know, suffering from some of those those side effects. Yeah, of course, love to. So if we think about puberty, like it's a really interesting time because we see, like, my daughter is nine, so I'm observant on the um, playground and listening to her conversations. And there's this complete divergence when kids get to be about seven or eight, where now the girls are more like, oh, monkey bars or you know, playing tag, but the guys. Are and the boys are still active in soccer, but they're being more exclusionary um, with regards to the girls because this is the early signs of puberty where bodies are starting to change. We're seeing early influences of hormones. And we also have the sociocultural aspect of boys are doing one thing and girls are doing the other. When we look at the hormonal effects, when we see the epigenetic changes that happen at puberty, when we see testosterone expression in the boys, then they lean up, they get stronger, they get more aggressive, they build lean mass, they get faster, you know, all of the, the attributes we see as successful in sports. So we have more power, we have more speed, we have more strength. When we see the epigenetic exposure, what happens with estrogen and progesterone with girls, their hips widen, their shoulder girdle widens, they put on more body fat, their, all their biomechanics change. So we're looking at more gangly type running, more um, landing mechanics that are improper, um, potential for injury, and a lot of body uh, self-consciousness. So there's not a lot of active play. And when we put the, the cusp on top of that is when their period starts. And now they're like, what the, now I can't swim because now I'm bleeding. I don't know what to do with this. And no one really talks about it so much. So when we look at puberty, we need to separate it out because up to this point, everyone's been putting the kids in kids sport and we're doing functional movement and we're doing specific drills. But when girls' bodies start to change, they need to be retaught the basic fundamentals of how to run, how to throw, how to jump, how to land, um, and working more on functional strength within their new biomechanics. Because that blip in performance and the decline in the body composition changes is a very small point in time. It might be maybe six months to a year, and then they start to settle into their new body. 
and you can really manipulate um, functional strength to build that lean mass so that their mechanics are great. So when they get to this new point where their bodies have settled, then they can start building onto the actual sport fitness, whatever that might be. The big problem with amenorrhea and it either primary or secondary. So primary means it's been delayed. So the periods don't start or secondary is they've had one or two and then it stops. Um, is with all of these body composition changes and girls putting on more body fat, there's also the pressure to remain in the prepubescent body because that's, you know, there's so many different times of, of when girls and boys actually hit that, that peak puberty. So girls are like, wait a second, my body's changed so much. So if they're involved in sport, one of the answers from a reflective standpoint, we know is girls will try to train more and eat less. So when you're training more and eating less, as well as having a developing, growing body, then you don't have as much nutrition to support everything. And one of the first things to go is endocrine function, menstrual cycle, because if you don't have enough to support general health, then you really don't have enough to support the growth of endometrial lining, the shedding of it, and the metabolic cost of that. And this is holds true as we go through the reproductive years. We see a lot of women who are training really hard or they have a misstep in their nutrient timing. So they might be doing fasted training. They might be doing time-restricted eating. So they're not fueling when their body needs it the most in and around training. So we have a perturbation where there's not enough calories coming in. The hypothalamus hears that and says, hey, wait a second, starts to perturb appetite hormones, reduces the luteinizing hormone pulse. If you don't have a luteinizing hormone pulse, you don't have ovulation, you don't have ovulation, you don't have estrogen and progesterone that comes up. You also have a downturn in your thyroid after only four days of low energy availability or intake. So we see all these ramifications and in elite sport, this comes out as amenorrhea, relative energy deficiency in sports. So then you have the ramifications of bone stress injuries, poor performance, um, body composition change initially in a positive scope for athletes where they lose body fat. But after a certain period of time, they start putting on body fat and can't remove it. So then it gets into that downward spiral of I'm putting fat on, I'm eating too much, I'm not training hard enough. And it just keeps getting and it's not just elite sport. We see it all the time in recreational athletes as well. And then when you get into perimenopause, it gets even worse because this is the time where you're having the downplay of estrogen and progesterone, a little bit of ovarian failure. And estrogen and progesterone affect every cell of the body. And it's responsible for lean mass development. It's responsible for blood sugar control, responsible for sympathetic and parasympathetic drive. So when you have all of these things changing because the hormones are shifting, then the body is under undue stress and you start to put on more belly fat. You start to lose lean mass. A lot of women in their mid 40s will say they woke up feeling squishy overnight. And so, again, the prevailing thought process because of historical issues is that you need to train more, eat less, try these trendy diets. Right. So then it puts the body under more stress. So we see this inherently throughout the entire spectrum where it's improper timing of fueling and most likely not enough calories to come in. And you see it all the time in strength athletes, which is what you're really familiar with, right? Is they do 
so much strength training, but they don't eat enough. So then they lose their periods and they don't actually put on the mass that they want. So working with power athletes, we're saying that if you take the restrictions off with regards to weight classes and they have that relief and they eat according to their their training, then they actually can boost their performance, boost their lifts, boost the amount that they can lift. And they end up falling into the same weight class without the struggle and the fight and they get their periods back. So it's a, it's a really interesting play on energy and energy availability cross with the cultural nuances of how women are supposed to be and feel and train. Yeah. And it's so you're, you're speaking my language there. Cause I think, you know, so often you, you look around in the space and, and especially uh, with, with social media, um, the, the whole concept of all you need is, you know, create a calorie deficit and you're going to lose body fat. You're going to lose weight. And, <laughs> and, and it's just, you know, I say it all the time. There's, there's certain things that may be valid, but not really useful. And there's a big difference between something that's valid or useful. And, um, you know, that advice I would say is not very useful, even though technically it may be valid. Um, but I think that we end up just uh, kind of getting stuck in that same cycle that, that you're referencing. And I've seen this, um, you know, most of our clients come to us significantly under eating, having tried all of the traditional diets, you know, keto and paleo and intermittent fasting and, you know, all of the restrictive protocols and end up frustrated and worse off than when they started. They don't understand it because they're like, look, you know, I was told to eat less and move more. So that's what I did. And now it's like my body's fighting against me. And I think hearing the explanation of, of why that's, that's kind of the case, not really fighting against you. It's trying to keep you alive. It's trying to protect yeah. you. You know, it's just, you know, those survival mechanisms kick in, but um, I, I would love to hear some of the like nutritional considerations, especially around perimenopause. I think that that is a topic that's probably one of the most misunderstood. Um, if you can talk about some of, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, nutrient timing, you mentioned just overall having enough calories coming in. Um, can you just kind of go into some of the nutritional considerations for, um, you know, perimenopause as, you know, kind of looking at that phase of life? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm just going to backtrack a bit when you're talking about like when women are coming in and saying, hey, what's happened in my body has been destroyed because there's this fine line between clinical practice and health and fitness. And it always gets blurred, especially by popular media. So in clinical practice, you're hearing keto and, and all this kind of stuff for weight loss in people who don't exercise. But as soon as that crosses the line, the people that exercise, it's a completely different population. And that's the disservice because no one says, hey, wait, this is appropriate for this population versus what's happening in the fitness population. So that's another like big thing that really irritates me and how popular media just pushes it out. And then when, when we talk about perimenopause, it's like the really underserved not spoken, like we could talk about periods and we can talk about oral contraceptive and IUDs. And we might be able to slowly talk about menopause. But when we talk about perimenopause, people are like, what is that? I don't like. So when we really look at perimenopause and that shift in what's happening with the hormones, like I said, in the hypothalamus, there are two areas for women and one area for men of cisceptin neurons. And cisceptin is upregulated and works really well when there's enough nutrition coming in. 
So it, it is driven by estrogen, it's driven by carbohydrates. So when we start looking at what's happening with perimenopause, we have that drop off of estrogen, we have a misstep in our appetite hormones. We also have a, a misstep in things like muscle protein synthesis, because if we look at the pathways, we know that there are three distinct pathways for muscle protein synthesis. We have insulin growth factor one that is driven also by estrogen. We have mechanical stress, which is physical activity, and we have amino acid profiles. So when we start to lose estrogen, we lose one of those pathways for muscle protein synthesis. We also uh, lose a stimulus for myosin. And so we're looking at a degeneration of muscle contraction. So when we're looking at perimenopause, we need to find ways to kind of support the body as these hormones are dropping off. So this is where we look at nutrition and mechanical stress. So protein becomes really super important, especially in or around training, because if we're putting the mechanical stress of heavy lifting or we're doing plyometric work for that neuro, um, that neural aspect of, of that explosive movement so we can get that actin-myosin connection, then we need to follow it up really well with a high dose of protein. We have anabolic resistance especially in peri- and postmenopausal women. So we need to up the protein from an aging standpoint. And as estrogen goes down, we also have more anabolic resistance. So we're looking at around 40 grams of high-quality protein post-exercise in order to really capture the ability for muscle protein synthesis because now we have those two pathways instead of one. So we do the really strong mechanical stress through heavy lifting and plyo work, following it up with a high dose of amino acids to keep them circulating. Then we still get the, the emphasis for lean mass development. And then we're looking at insulin resistance that also happens with perimenopause. We have to look at the kinds of carbohydrates that we're eating and when we're eating them. So we want carbohydrate in and around training so that we can really capture the GLUT4 mechanism and the ability to pull carbohydrate in because now we have less um, ability from an insulin standpoint post-exercise. So if we're looking at refilling glycogen in the muscle, we need to follow exercise up with carbohydrate. And then as the day goes on, looking more fruit and veg type oriented carbohydrate instead of some of those quick hits. If we look at the overview of what happens in perimenopause, we need to bump up that protein. Most women don't eat enough protein anyway, but it's really super important in perimenopause to get that 40 gram post-exercise and even doses at every meal around 30, 35 grams at every meal. Keep amino acids circulating, keep loosening up so that you're getting the impetus for lean mass development. You're getting it for gut health and for brain health. And then from a carbohydrate standpoint, if you're someone who likes cocoa puffs, then you eat it before exercise so that it doesn't really shoot up your blood sugar and then you don't have the insulin control to bring it in. But then the rest of the time you're looking, okay, well, now I need to have more of a reliance on really colorful fruit and veg for my carbohydrate and for gut microbiome. So it's a little bit of that nuance switch for nutrition, but training is the biggest change. Coming from the endurance set, and talking to endurance athletes who are so afraid of getting into the weight room or they think resistance training is body weight circuit work, it's not. You need to really look at heavy lifting. That's my tagline is lifting heavy shit because that's what you need to do. Um, and then that high intensity 
like really strong sit or hit work where it's full gas for 20 to 60 seconds, super, super low intensity, really short volume, high intensity work, even if you're an endurance athlete. And then I talk about soul food on the weekend, go out for your long ride or run, but it's super, super embarrassingly slow. So you're really polarizing the training. And when you talk to someone who's in their 40s and they've been doing something up to this point, and now it's not working for them, and you have to have this complete mind shift about eating more protein, really working hard for short duration, it is really difficult for women to get their head around. And especially in the endurance set. So it's like, okay, let's do small steps. What's the first hurdle? Let's get the nutrition sorted, fueling for every session before and after. And then if you need a calorie deficit because you're trying to budge a little bit of weight, it's before bed. Like you're not eating after dinner so that you have really good sleep because we have sleep issues with perimenopause. So it's really trying to figure out the nuances of the timing around stuff. And then we can add in the changes in the training. Yeah. And I love that you mentioned that. I think that so often uh, we get caught up in trying to check every box and, you know, do everything at once. And uh, oftentimes that's, you know, that's what gets people in trouble is trying to do too much and then constantly thinking that more is better. Like, let's just focus on the one thing, the low hanging fruit that we can tackle and uh, get solidified before we move to the next thing. Um, A lot of questions came up. Number one, when you're looking at increasing protein intake, if as a general recommendation, you know, you hear numbers thrown around like 0.7 to one gram per pound of body weight, somewhere in that range. Um, Do you subscribe to that? And if so, what type of changes would you recommend um, as you, you know, start to increase protein heading into perimenopause? Yeah. So when we look at those recommendations and with full disclosure, I'm working on a position stand for female athlete nutrition. So I'm like the stuff that's coming out is not just off the top of my head. It's because I'm right in the literature. Uh, those recommendations come from strength trained men or the comparing recommendations for women to sedentary uh, men. So when we start looking specifically at recommendations for women, they don't really exist. There was one paper that came out in 2019 that was looking at resistance trained women and their protein needs And it's twice of what the recommendation is because of the mechanical stress and the reparation and the differences in fueling between men and women. So when I look at the recommendations, I kind of like, "Mm, that could be a baseline for someone who isn't doing resistance training or isn't doing high volume endurance work. Sweet. But we know that when you start adding mechanical stress, your need for amino acids goes up. So the best thing to do regardless of life stage is really go, okay, how much protein am I getting at each meal? Because women will, well, not just women, most people will stack protein in the morning because they're kind of good at that, you know, maybe they'll have some lean protein at night with dinner, but in the day it's this big hole, right? And we need to really look at how are we keeping amino acids circulating throughout the day to not only support muscle protein synthesis, but all the other activities require amino acids. And when we're looking at the anabolic resistance that comes with age, women don't age linearly like men um, because we have perimenopause, right? So we see this big change in women 
in the four to five years before menopause starts. And it's a significant amount of aging that happens there. Whereas men, you start to see that in the late 50s, early 60s. So with women, it's like, okay, well, let's look at your hormonal profile and where you are in that hormone profile really dictate how much protein you need. So if you are in that perimenopausal state, we really need to look at upping protein. It's really super important because you're under a lot of chronic stress. You have elevated baseline of cortisol. You have systemic inflammation. You have a high oxidation um, aspect as well. So we really need to support the body with reparation. And this is the protein. We look at postmenopause um, because you're now flatlined with your hormones and you still have this anabolic resistance. It's the same as men who are in their late 50s, early 60s, where we start to see the anabolic resistance. And we know from the research that hitting that 30 to 40 grams post-exercise is super important for aging men to get that muscle protein synthesis. Same with women. So it's really looking at the kind of mechanical stress women are doing and their hormonal profile to really say, okay, we need to push you up more towards that um, 2.2 to 2.3 grams per kilogram. So a little over one per pound. Um, and women are like, wait, that's a lot of protein. That's like 120 to 150 grams of protein in a day. But it's not that difficult to get if you're thinking about Sorry, school school going by. If you're thinking about um, outside of your norms of protein, so we have all your dairy and you have your lean um, meat proteins that we think about, but you also have your seeds, you also have nuts, you have tempeh, you have um, green peas. So there's a whole bunch of other things that, that contribute to that protein intake. And there's a lot of education that has to go around it as well. Yeah, totally agree. Um, that's really interesting about looking at the specific recommendations and, and how that changes. Um, it, it's something because as you were mentioning that, I'm immediately I'm thinking, okay, like the one gram per pound um, kind of upper limit. Like we, I push, I go over that just because I like protein. But I'm thinking like a lot of the, our clients who are like, oh my god, how am I ever going to get that much protein? But you're right; it's you know just the education and awareness first, and then understanding why we're doing it, and and gradually, you know, we're not trying to go from 50 grams a day to 150 grams a day overnight. We're trying to gradually get better at, you know, like you said, timing and and looking at all protein sources. And um, it's yeah. you know, like any other behavior change; it just takes time to implement. Um, another thing, as you were talking, that came to mind was about endurance athletes and you mentioning like, Hey, we want to lift heavy shit. Like that's kind of where we should be focusing. But, um, and, and this is total anecdotal and, and coming from experience, having worked with a lot of people, um, in particular, a lot of women, I would say that over the years, the endurance diehards were often the ones who struggled with their body composition the most. Like I'm not giving up my running, this is my therapy. I go out every morning. I run my like five, 10. We've had clients of like, I run, you know, 15 miles a day. It's like the more, the better. And trying to get them to shift that mindset to dialing it back, lifting heavy shit. It's uh, certainly a, a tug of war that has happened. I've noticed. And again, this is total anecdotal evidence here, but um, how do you start to approach that, that shift and um, you know, helping an individual, who is an endurance fanatic to, 
you know, create that. Oh, yeah. Shift. Oh, yeah. No, I've been there. Like, I've raced Bikes World Cup, you know, 120K races. I did Ironman for many years. So I'm fully in that endurance circle. And it's been a mind shift. But um, part of it is is really getting people to understand that when they're doing long, slow, and I now have a cadre of women who are or who are um, ultra runners, because it seems that as women age, they fall into ultra sport, which makes sense because when you lose your hormones and you rely more on the sex differences, bodies in that age group are really endurance. So they're designed to go long and slow, not fast. So they naturally fall into that. So we start saying, okay, well, when you want to be able to break away on a hill or you want to be able to pick up the pace, how do you do that? Oh, I do hill reps. Really? How do you have the strength to increase your pace on the hill? So pulling them back and really getting them to understand, well, if we do heavy lifting, it's not about putting on the mass because women can't really put on bulk, especially as they get older. Uh, And the more endurance you do, the less ability you have to put the tissue on. So pulling them back and saying, we're going to do some heavy lifting. And what we're going to do is we're going to prime the muscle for you to go do your hill reps. So it's a slow implementation of let's do the gym work first, and then we can follow it up with some hill reps. And if we're doing it, then you're teaching your body the mechanical aspect of running fatigued. So I put it back into the performance aspect of their primary sport. And then they start seeing the benefits of lifting heavy in their running up the hill. And then they start going, oh, maybe I should put a little bit more effort into lifting and not so much into the long stuff. And then when we start talking, well, why are you getting up and running 10 miles in the morning? Is it really therapy or is it you're trying to get abs? Because if you're trying to get abs or you're trying to like lose weight, then that's the worst possible thing you can do. So it's really, again, that education scope. But there are still so many women who are just so addicted to the mindset of calories in, calories out. I have to do fasted training. I need to go for my 10 mile run or my day isn't complete. It's that behavioral change. So it's understanding the cultural nuances around it. And I'll tell you, it is super hard. Like ultra runners uh, now, they're like, well, how do I get my time on my feet? So it's like, okay, well, we look at the periodization. You're short on time in the week. So we're going to do posterior chain work in the gym. And we're going to follow it up with 15 minutes of specific intervals on the treadmill. And then we're going to focus on that heavy lifting and that high intensity stuff during the week for about two weeks and then on the third week when we're deloading this is where everything is long and slow and we're going to go out and it's going to be an rp of five to six when you're going up the hill and over the course of three cycles they start to see the significant improvement in their long runs and they get to get confident i've had women who have emailed me on the backside of that after listening and they're like i just did this seven-day stage race where all I was doing is heavy lifting and then a couple of long, slow stuff on the weekend, and I finished it uninjured, I finished it faster, and I was the strongest one on the team. Same with ultra running. So it's that education and that push and understanding the mindset of that calories in, calories out, and really asking the question of what are you trying to get out of that morning run, and then pulling them back in ways that still hit that idea of I'm running, but giving them the benefit of the heavy lifting. 
Yeah, I love that because you're bringing everything back to their primary goal in the first place, which is like, well, I just want to get better at running. I want to perform better and and kind of connecting the dots to, okay, well, this is what we're going to do, which ultimately will will help with that outcome. I think, you know, a lot of times, um, again, just because of how much misinformation is out there, we end up taking action that's diametrically opposed to what we truly want. Like the individual who who does want abs and they're like, okay, I'm just going to eat 1200 calories a day and do excessive amounts of cardio. And, and like, you know, we're, we're actually moving further away. Um, you, you mentioned fasted training and I'm curious because that's, that seems to be popular with, um, you know, with, again, I think it's just, it's become mainstream, you know, intermittent fasting. <sighs> which even, you know, we can, this would be a whole separate side conversation, but even the way that intermittent fasting is thrown around and it's not true anyway, but the, the mainstream popularity of things like fasted cardio and fasted training and intermittent fasting, like, can you talk about that, especially from the female perspective? Um, Because there, there is a bit of, you know, stress that's in, you know, you're, you're placing additional stress on your body, on your system. And um, when we add, the stress of likely not eating enough calories overall and the stress of intense training and then the stress of your work life and personal life. Um, can you just talk about, you know, are you somebody who says, you know, pretty much across the board, it's probably a bad idea for most women or, or what's kind of your take? Women should not do fasted training full stop. <laughs> and I say that um, because of inherent sex differences. So it's, if we look at, the reason why people do fasted training is to enhance fat metabolism, right? So we want to be able to burn more fat at whatever workload we're doing. And we look at not the hormonal epigenetic aspects of estrogen enhancing fat metabolism. We look at specific sex differences from birth. And we look at the the muscle itself and the mitochondria proteins within the muscle. So women, by the nature of being XX, have more of the proteins within the mitochondria for burning and using fatty acids as compared to men. So when we look at fasted training research, we look at um, you know some of the intermittent and restricted calorie restriction and time restricted eating, and the research is on men. When we look at the outcomes of men, they upregulate those metabolic hormones within the mitochondria. So then, yes, they do enhance their fatty acid metabolism. But for the nature of women who are, you know, XX having ovaries, then they're already there by birth. They don't need to do that fatty acid uptake, teaching the body to be, quote, more metabolically efficient, because by the nature of being women, we're already there. And then you add estrogen, and estrogen also upregulates fatty acid metabolism and spares carbohydrate. So when we look at fasted training, specifically in women, It's not doing what the popular media and the messaging is out there to say, we're going to increase our fat metabolism. We're going to increase our body's reliance on free fatty acids. What it is doing is it's increasing cortisol. It is perturbing the kisspeptin and the hypothalamus to say, hey, wait a second, there's not enough nutrition coming in to support this stress. So I need to start down regulating all the other metabolic functions that are high energetic cost. So we see, like I said earlier, within four days, thyroid takes a hit. And so you start having a dysregulation of the thyroid. So resting metabolic rate comes down. 
we start to turn off kisspeptin, so we have a perturbance in appetite hormones. So women are really removed from what it feels like to be nourished, to be full or hungry. So these hunger cues get misstepped. And when we look at what fasted training does for body composition, it actually increases the stimulus to put on belly fat. So you'll see a lot of women who, even in physique building, right, and they have to lose and they're told to do 30 to 45 minutes of fasted cardio. And they have that little bit of belly fat they can't get rid of. And it is that stimulus of not having enough nutrition to support endocrine function, especially the menstrual cycle and reproductive function. So coming back down to like the research of fasted training, we know that women do much better in a fed state. And the goal of training is to be able to hit those metrics that you want to get stress for adaptation. If you're not fed, especially as a woman, you can't hit those metrics for adaptation. You sit in that kind of gray zone where it's too hard to be easy and too easy to be hard. And that just upregulates cortisol. So baseline cortisol comes up, you stay in a sympathetic drive, you don't hit parasympathetic. So if you don't hit parasympathetic, then you can't sleep well. If you don't sleep well, you don't get into slow wave sleep. You don't get into REM sleep. So you don't have um, physical or mental reparation or solidification. So it's like, well, why are you training? Why are you training? There's no reason for you to do that because you should have just like stayed in bed because that's the same thing. Except if you stayed in bed, you wouldn't have as much cortisol and you wouldn't have as high stress. So when people are like, I do fasted training, I'm like, why? Like if you want to achieve your goals, why are you doing fasted training? Yeah. So I'm going to call out like half of my audience right now who are right now thinking, but I wake up at like 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. and I train at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m., What's, what's your response to that? You see these dark circles under my eyes? Those are from my goggles this morning in the pool. So I get up at five, I head to the pool. But what I have in the fridge is a protein fortified coffee. i fully addicted to coffee, right? So I have a scoop of protein. I have five grams of creatine in a cold brew and I top it with sweetened almond milk. And people are like, what sweetened almond milk? But then I get some protein, some carbohydrate, might be, I don't know, 100 to 150 calories. It's enough to bring my circulation of blood sugar up, drop cortisol. Then I can hit the metrics that I want. I do it before I hit the gym. I do it before swimming. I do it before CrossFit. I do it before bike ride. Just to get that cortisol down and blood sugar up, signaling to the body, yes, there's nutrition. And then after I finish, that's when I have breakfast. That's when I have real food. That's when I have a bigger meal to solidify the recovery. So people who are like, I can't eat it for 4.30 in the morning. It doesn't have to be a large amount. It might be 100 to 150 calories of protein and carbohydrate to signal to the brain that there is nutrition to drop cortisol that has been coming up because we know it peaks first thing in the morning around seven. So you're dropping cortisol, signaling to the hypothalamus that there is nutrition coming in. You can really polarize your training that way. So you can hit those top end metrics. And overall, because you're doing that, you see body composition change with less effort in a positive manner. We don't see increased body fat. We see decrease in body fat. So when people just start putting in that little bit before training, within two weeks, like, oh, my gosh, why have I been doing fasted training for so long? Yeah, I love it. And that that drink actually sounds delicious. So I think I might, it's awesome. I might have to try that as well. Um, <laughs> So I'm I'm curious because we've you know we've kind of touched on this topic a few times about uh, you know getting in enough when we talk about 
you know, quantity, uh, how many calories are you, are you getting in and, um, you know, timing of things like, and you also have mentioned a couple of times about the, the quality of those food sources. And I think this is another topic that's kind of a silly debate because they both matter. Um, but you have kind of the, you know, if it fits your macros crew who are like, you know, it doesn't matter what you eat, just eat whatever, control your calorie intake, hit your macros and food quantity or quality doesn't matter. And then you have the like clean eating crew who's like, oh, you don't have to worry about how much you're eating. Just eat these quality foods. And um, I would, I'm just curious kind of your take on, um, you know, the the quality and quantity discussion. Yeah. So um, I, I get into this quite a bit where I'm like, I follow the 80-20 rule. Uh, I'm a military brat. I grew up in you know military family and it was always the 80, 20, 80% spot on 20% for all the other factors, right? So I apply it to life. And I hate it when people are counting calories. I hate it when people are counting macros because it takes the fun out of food, right? And I also think that clean eating in itself is another sort of kind of control mechanism for other people who need control over whatever it is in their life. Um, So you come back to like eating local, eating low on the food chain, right? And then when you're eating low on the food chain, you're getting a wide variety of different colors. You're getting a wide variety of different types of protein. So you're taking care of all those basic needs. And then it's the fun factor. If you like wine, have a little bit of wine. If you like whiskey, chocolate, whatever it is. But the more processed you are, then you're looking at all the cellular aspects that happen with inflammation, with um, like poor gut microbiome and all of those aspects. So it's just eating low on the food chain. But the biggest thing really is fueling for what you are doing. If you get the timing right, then that's the biggest thing that you can do right for your body. If you're someone who's really into following macros and you really are like, I need to hit my protein macros, then you want to really make sure that you're hitting it in and around training but then spread out the rest evenly throughout the rest of the day. If you're someone who is like, I need to eat clean. Yeah, there's a time and a place for it, but you want to make sure that you have a a fast uptake of carbohydrate in and around training in order to fuel it. So when we talk about quantity versus, you know, quality, I'm always like a calorie isn't just a calorie. You have to think about what it's doing and why you're, why you're taking it in for your body. Um, I guess it's not really putting a definitive stake in the sand and saying one way or the other, but I don't know. I'm, I've gone through both ends of things, right? I've gone through, I need to eat so much and hit these metrics, especially when I was racing at such a high level. And then I've gone through the whole like clean eating phase. It's gone through neither one made me feel fantastic. So it's like, okay, now I'm listening to what I need. And some days I eat more, shitty food because I've been in a calorie deficit and I really am craving a lot of fat and sometimes a little bit of extra quick hits of carbohydrate. And then other days I'm like, you know what? I really have not been eating that great and I feel pretty shitty. So I'm going to focus more on more fruit and veg, not so much of the caffeine or, you know, so it's listening inherently. Uh, And Again, it comes down to that cultural influence that we've been ingrained so long of this is how you need to eat as a woman. But I think about guys that they don't have as much pressure. 
there is some pressure for sure, but not as much pressure to abide by certain dietary rules that women are under. Yeah, completely agree. Um, and, and it seems like you go mostly on, you know, listening to your body, biofeedback, how am I performing and recovering and sleeping, my mood, things like that. Um, I'm curious though, and this might open, I know we're, we're kind of running up on time and this might open a whole nother rabbit hole, but uh, for women who have kind of ignored, for lack of a better word, their, their biological signals in terms of, you know, like the cultural pressure of, well, I just have to be hungry because I have to eat less and that's just what I have to do. Um, I can ignore these cravings. I can ignore the fact that like my mood's all over the place. I can ignore all of these stress signals because I just have to do it and almost becoming disconnected from listening to the you know biofeedback markers that are sending that loud signal like, hey, something's not right. You need to get us some freaking food. Um, how do you start to bring that back and just the trust in listening to, to what your body's communicating? Yeah, that's a really hard one. Um, and again, I, I first started, I'll backtrack and, and say a lot of the women I've been working with recently are professional female cyclists and with COVID and the stress and really trying to maintain their contracts. They're like, okay, I need to really make weight power to weight ratio. And they're completely not in tune with what it means to be hungry because they've been pushed into this realm of on recovery days, I'm only allowed to eat 1100 calories or 1200 calories. And then on training days, when they're burning on the upwards of four to 5,000 calories, depending on if it's a training or a race day, but then only eating 2000, their appetite hormones are completely muted. They don't know what it means to feel nourished or to feel good. So I pull it back. And again, I just bring it back to performance. I'm like, okay, we're not going to focus so much on how much you need to eat. But what I want you to do is I want you to have this amount of food before you train, this amount of food during your ride, and this amount of food afterwards. And then four to five hours later on the third day, tell me how you feel. Because when you start feeling like that and around that stress, Around the fifth day, your appetite hormones have kicked in. So when you don't have food within that five hours after a big stress, you're like, wait a second, I feel hungry. And then it's learning that cue again. So the first thing, like I've been saying all the way through, is when women start fueling for that stress of training, knowing that we don't get fitter during training, we get fitter with the adaptation to training and we need food for that adaptation. Then the hypothalamus kicks in, appetite hormones start to work a bit better, but it does take a little bit of time. With my professional cyclists, because they've been in such a hole for so long, getting them to feel nourished and be able to push the power they need to in their training sessions, and then having that break from food before like dinner, and they start to feel, oh, what is that? My stomach feels a bit empty. I feel a bit lightheaded. I'm like, that's hunger. So getting them to understand what hunger feels like. Yeah, I love it. That's that's really helpful. And uh, I'm so glad that you mentioned about uh, we get better when we are adapting to the you know stimulus that we've imposed on ourselves. And I think it's a message that cannot be stated enough. We Anything that we improve upon, anything that we get better at, it's when we're recovering, when we're in parasympathetic right. state, when we're sleeping, that's when we actually improve. So um, really helpful. Uh, I would love for you to just share you know, where everybody can stay connected with you and, you know, anything that you've got going on, um, you know, 
where you hang out online, anything that uh, the audience can stay up to date with, with everything that you've got going on. Yeah. So social, I'm Dr. Stacey Sims on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and then website is drstacysims.com, of course. If you're more geeky inclined and academic inclined, then I do all of that on Twitter under my own personal handle called Summerstack. Um, but big things coming up. Uh, we have the launch of our second book. Um, so we it's available now, but it gets shipped out on the 17th of May. And it's follow-up to Roar, but it's all on the peri- and post-menopause set. So all the questions that we get in that been put into book form. Um, and then I have various research studies that are being published and coming out. Courses, we're doing mini courses on like adaptogens and protein, how to read labels, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so yeah, there's lots of stuff out there that I'm up to. I need more than just me. So I'm hoping my daughter grows up quickly so she can I hear you. Um, awesome. Well, I will post all of that information in the show notes so everybody can uh, get a copy of the book, stay up to date on all of the courses and research and, and everything that, that you've got going on. This was um, really helpful for me personally. I learned a lot through this episode. I really appreciate cool. the conversation. Um, and I know I'm going to be sending this out to all of my coaches and make sure that they give it a listen. Um, but I really appreciate the time and uh, we, we will talk soon. Yeah, thank you.